Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello and welcome to this special Aspen UK conversation. I'm Penny Richards, the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK. Aspen's purpose since 1949 has been to drive change through dialogue, leadership and action, and in doing so helps solve some of the greatest challenges of our time. I was recently invited to be a guest on Anthony Scaramucci's Mooch FM podcast, where we talked a little more about the work we do here at Aspen and what the future holds. I really enjoyed the conversation and Anthony has kindly allowed us to release it for our Aspen UK podcast. Our thanks to Anthony and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Anthony Scaramucci and welcome to Mooch FM. Each week I talk to the biggest names in politics, business, media and beyond to discuss the major issues and break down what's going on here in the United States and around the world. Coming up, Penny Richards is the Managing Director of Aspen UK. This is Mooch FM. Penny, thanks for joining me. You spent 20 years covering war zones for the BBC. Let's start there. Tell us about that experience. Do you know, it's an extraordinary way to live a life. And I loved every single second of it. It's It's a massive privilege to witness history as events are unfolding (laughs) but you also don't do it unless you're a little bit peculiar and a little bit mad and very very competitive so and very very curious so it played to all those slightly strange parts of my personality but but to as I said to witness events as they unfold it's remarkable I was you know in in very diverse places like Bosnia and in South Africa at the end of apartheid and Rwanda during a genocide and in Indonesia at the downfall of Suharto and, and various other um, events that unfurled in front of my eyes. And yeah, an extraordinary way to live. Not a fantastic way to have a very normal life, but I loved every second of it. War zones, do they have similarities or is each war zone different? I've, I'm, you know, I've only been to two war zones. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan on troop support missions. I thought there were some similarities actually, but those are only two what's your opinion probably I think as a journalist and especially as a broadcast journalist you you're you're in teams of people you probably work as I did for the BBC for organizations that that mean you're very protected and very careful in what you're trying to achieve I think there's probably war zones are very different if you're a freelance cameraman or a freelance um photographer of some sort I think in some ways they were all quite similar. There's the, 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 there's the fog of war, if you like. It's really hard to, to identify exactly what's happening. But I suppose the, the commonality is, is the suffering of, of an extraordinary, massive majority of people who don't want to be involved, whose country is disintegrating around them, who have no agency in what's going on and who are absolutely desperate. So I think that's probably the common the commonality. And the other one, which is much more trivial, and I apologise for taking it to such a low base level already, but I remember once I was going off actually to Lebanon, and I remember a girlfriend calling me as I was on my way to the airport. She said, I'm really worried that you're there. I'm really worried you're going to be very lonely. 
And I remember thinking that's the last thing you are as a journalist when you're covering a very big story, because you know the, the hordes of journalists, most of whom you've last met in the last disaster zone, will be there. They tend to gather by osmosis at the particular bar or the hotel or, or the place where you know, where everyone else hangs out. So in some ways there's there's a real similarity and you get to know a lot of the people who are covering the same war zones as, as you do. So even now I'll bump into people and you know we'll have that sort of slightly peculiar conversation, which I always hope no one's eavesdropping when we sort of say things like, oh, when's the last time you met? And we can't remember if it's Zaire or Beirut. So it, it's it's a strange life and a very compelling one. Well, I think the thing that the emphasis is obviously on the human suffering and we go through these uh, periods of time where people glorify war. Those are typically the people that have never experienced war that glorify it. But it is, um, it's extremely painful to be in those areas. You switched to the Aspen UK, the Aspen Institute. Uh, tell us why and why is the work at Aspen so important? I had a few steps in between, but the steps were all leading to Aspen, I truly believe. The Aspen Institute, as you know, because I, I know that you've spoken to Walter Isaacson on this podcast, is an extraordinary organisation that has immense convening power to bring the right people together, to have the right conversations, sometimes uncomfortable conversations at the right time, to see whether we, they, us can affect change to make society a better place. And it sounds like a very amorphous thing to, to, to talk about, but the Aspen Institute has its extraordinary ability to bring people together who might fundamentally disagree, would certainly very often never have had the opportunity to meet, to discuss incredibly important topical topics and to see how they can affect that change. And we do that in, in lots of different ways. Some of our communities are very private, bringing people together to have them reflect on their own values and their own ethics to see whether they can become better leaders and, and bring together a better society. And sometimes we do it in public where we encourage people in public to have uncomfortable conversations, to have better arguments, to, to disagree with each other, but to do that courteously. And so I, I, I feel that I spent the first half of my career watching when that didn't work, watching when societies unfolded and sometimes incredibly quickly. And I think my second half of my career is seeing what I can do to, to bring groups, societies, communities, individuals back into a room to understand each other better and learn from each other. I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that the UK and US track each other in some ways politically. And I would say that there's polarity and polarization in both of our societies. And so tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. But then what would the role that the Aspen Institute UK play to help bridge those divides? First of all, unfortunately, I agree with you. I, we are both living, I think, in countries and in societies that are deeply polarized, where people feel very alienated from each other when they choose or can't understand each other. And I think it's a tragedy that's unfurling for our eyes. And I'm not sure whether it's getting any better. I know that you're, um, you have a new, relatively new president. Um, we still have a relatively um, populist government here. I think one of the roles that we can play, and we have already started to play quite effectively in the UK, is to 
be obsessive about convening with diversity in mind. So when we bring a group of people together, we don't have the normal people. And in the UK, we're very, very centred on London. And so the chattering classes, if you like, are, are pretty much based in London, most of the power. The, the commercial, the financial, the political, the administrative power, all based in one city in the UK. So we are obsessed about bringing people with real diverse experiences, lived experiences, educational experiences, political views together. And when we talk about diversity at Aspen, we don't just talk about gender and ethnicity, even though, of course, they're incredibly important, but we also take real care in bringing together people who have different ages, different educational backgrounds, different political views, and a lot about different geography. Because I think very often, if you come from a small town here or a rural part of you know, an island in Scotland, you are going to have completely different views, aspirations, expectations from someone who's been brought up in, in close to the seats of power. So we convene with that in mind and encourage people to have uncomfortable conversations together. And in, in doing so, hope that they learn to trust each other. They learn to trust people who they would never have had the opportunity to agree or disagree with in person. Yeah, you know, listen, I find the whole thing very painful, um, but I appreciate the work that you're doing. Let's switch to the European Union, a great collaboration with crucial topics, right? Obviously, foreign policy, climate crisis. What are some of the takeaways from the G7 discussion so far? Uh, our relationship or our partnership that we, we've started with the European Union delegation in London has been really helpful in, in, in bringing the, those topics to light. And one of the reasons that they approached us to see whether we do some work with them is I think the European Union was very concerned that once the UK left and once Brexit had finally taken place, we were never going to be able to have the opportunity to talk about the positives in, in our new relationship between the union of the United Kingdom, the union of the UK, if you like. So we've been hosting some really helpful conversations with them. Again, some have been private. and We've, we've had one recently on regulation of, of, of digital platforms, which is really interesting when we brought together people from organisations like so Twitter and Microsoft and some of the smaller platforms as well to really hack through what they thought was necessary, both in the UK and the European Union. It's absolutely fascinating. The week after next, for example, we're looking at clean air. We're looking at the environmental challenges that, that in particular, actually, the City of London is addressing, but other cities around Europe are addressing as well. No, it, it's, it's a really lovely opportunity to bring together some of the experts. And again, who might fundamentally disagree with each other, Anthony. So that's one of the great pleasures that I think we provide a really comfortable platform to have awkward conversations there's something i think seriously joyous about bringing people together who come perhaps from the same industry or the same issue but don't necessarily agree in in how you can reach what they think are the most important goals um so for example we had um, a webinar not that long ago where we brought together some of the great scientists who are looking at climate change but we also brought someone from extinction rebellion which is a uh, a remarkable campaigning group that's been established in the UK that does quite a lot of guerrilla action against um, large corporates and, and government. So we we don't shy away from bringing people together who probably want the same goals, but their methodology are staggeringly different. 
How do you how do you do that, Penny? I mean, I'm about to nominate you for the American Secretary of State, even though you're probably not <laughs> a citizen. But how do you how do you do that? Tell us tell us what you think about in terms of building those bridges. Ah, well, I'm not sure we we're always successful, so I shouldn't take any pride in in our success. But I think we're at least trying. I think, first of all, you let people know that's what you want to do. You let them know they're going to be in a, a relatively comfortable environment. I mean, so, you know, I think emotionally, not necessarily physically. We, we tell them who they're going to be talking with so we don't sort of hijack them and, and spring things on them. And quite often, especially in the, um, the private communities, but actually also in the public, we bring really talented moderators with us. So they are either if they're public events, they're some of the world's finest journalists, or if they're in the private event, we, we have fully trained moderators in the Aspen methodology and so I think we don't hijack we let people know what's happening in advance we explain exactly what we're trying to achieve the other thing we do which I think is really amazing and a lot of what the Aspen Institute in the US has been doing this for 70 years is that when we convene privately in some senses we send out a group of reading the collection of readings beforehand so rather than using Brexit, for example, rather than address Brexit straight in one, when you've got, you know, half the room is are people who think Brexit's absolutely the worst idea of anything that's ever happened to the UK in the last 50 years. And then you have a, the other half of the room who think it's going to give our, our rights and our freedoms back. Rather than address it straight on, what we might do is we will send a reading that might be about, say, for example, polarisation, say, in 18th century Spain. So they know emotionally they're sort of talking about something that is dear to their heart but because it can be because the conversation can be linked to something that for them isn't contentious it means they can bring a lot more of their opinions it means they can bring a lot more of their values to the conversation and it probably means they can listen to people in a slightly more curious less, less judgmental way because I think so much of these conversations aren't necessarily about talking, they're about listening. <laughs> Says the person who's just been talking at you, I'm so sorry, but I think the listening no, and teaching- I, mean, I, find if, listening. I would be interrupting you if I, if I didn't <laughs> find it fascinating, but I find it, I find what you're saying fascinating. And I, and I think that it's a, and I'm listening carefully because even in industry, we have polarization. It's not just yeah. a political discussion. You know, you've got people tugging at each other in different industries. Think about the energy industry as an example. You've got certain people that uh, won't accept the science behind climate change. Uh, look at the vaccine situation. Uh, your 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 situation, as we were talking about before we got started, in the United Kingdom is way better than the U.S. on the vaccines. I have friends of mine that are reasonably well educated, high school, elementary school teachers, uh, refuse to get the vaccine. They watch Fox News even though all the hosts on Fox News have gotten the vaccine, uh, they won't get the vaccine. They think there's a, I don't know, there's a tracking device in it or some kind of crazy stuff like that. How do you handle, I mean, you're an experienced journalist working for a world-class organization for 20 years, and you're now at the Aspen Institute, and you're all about facts and objectivity. How do you parse through all of this disinformation what would you say to people in terms of finding the truth in things? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you mentioned that I'm all about facts and information, but so much of this isn't about facts and so much isn't about information. So much of it is about the emotion. And I think that's much harder. 
Very good point, by the way. It's a much harder thing to um, fight, isn't it? You know, so much of the Brexit rhetoric that, that took place before the referendum in the UK wasn't about facts. It, and, and in fact, a lot of the facts were inaccurate. It was it was touching on what people needed to hear. I think I think it's really hard. I, I think that and the more I think that people like me, you know, I'm a Londoner, I'm, you know, probably can be identified as a liberal elite because I work for the BBC. And, you know, I'm sure that if I hectored people by telling them they're wrong, by telling them that their information is wrong, I think that's going to help. So I think it's giving them opportunities to, to listen, giving people opportunities to talk. Just going back to that listening thing, by the way, the first time I ever went to an Aspen seminar, which is one of the, the gatherings we do privately, I was exhausted at the end of the first day and I didn't understand why because I hadn't been doing anything I'd been sitting in a room surrounded by fascinating people and I it took me a long time to recognize I was so tired because I hadn't actively listened for so long I think I'd been a bit of a despot in my last job and and it was yeah so, so listening is hard work and a lot of people don't want to listen so we have to just find different ways and of of subtly sprinkling them with emotionally correct information well people don't want to listen uh, unless they hear themselves speaking uh, that would be me by the way so that's why i'm trying to be cautious <laughs> all my verbiage penny but but let's go to the uh uk government uh what do you think the goals of the uk government are with these discussions at the g7 in cornwall and also the upcoming cop 26 meetings in november what do you think the uh goals are for the UK? Well, the first thing is I think the UK is incredibly lucky to be hosting both those those events this year. I think it's been a really helpful opportunity to get them onto the global stage. I think we've been, I feel that that this country has been buffeted by by what's happened politically in the last few years to to take our way from away from, from the European Union has been a dent, I think, in our public in this is the identity that we hold dear around the world. So I think it's been incredibly important. So I think one of the, um, the goals has just been to sort of highlight a thoughtful, welcoming country again. And I, I, I think that the G7, I don't know, you must tell me, but I think the G7 looked marvellous. And I think to have President Biden and his first foreign trip since become president of being in the UK, I think has been a sort of fantastic stop to them. I also think that I hesitate to say this, but I think most right-minded people know that there's such a challenge ahead when it comes to climate crisis. So I think any opportunity any government has to to host proper conversations, to push the dial, to get people around the table, to make sort of sensible agreements, I think can only be valued. So I think it's you know I think the soft power has been really helpful, but I think. The UK government, I think, is actually largely respected by its people on what it's doing with climate change. And let's hope it's respected by some of the, the work it's going to be doing in the future. The other thing that was interesting about the G7 that hasn't been much talked about is that, that the British government invited some non-G member um, participants. So Australia visited, India was there, South Korea. And those countries are at different stages of their evolution when it comes to their commitment towards net zero. So I think, again, that was quite helpful to have different voices in the room and, and different stages of, of um, commitment. Well, they certainly seem calmer and less stressed without Donald Trump in the room. Would that be fair to say? 
<laughs> I wasn't in the room, but chances are, I think you're probably right. So you're launching the Young Leaders Fellowship this year, uh, which is obviously a positive result uh, from the pandemic. Tell us about that. Oh, I'm so excited about it. It's hard, I think, to say that, that there have been some positives that have come out of the global pandemic, but I think that we've all recognised that working virtually is not the worst thing that can happen to some of us. And so in the past, the Aspen Institute would have always brought, to be, brought together people in person. And we just decided pretty much this time last year, actually to try and experiment and see whether we could convene in our leadership seminars virtually. And actually much to our delight and actually quite a lot to our surprise, they've been incredibly effective. So later this year, we're going to be launching, as you said, a Young Leaders Fellowship, where we're going to bring 25 people together a month for 10 months every year, over three years. So by the end of our fellowship, we'll have 70, 750 of some of the finest young leaders in the UK who will have learned to listen to each other, as we've been talking about, learn to network with each other, learn to understand each other and build a different type of community. So again, when we do our job well, and I think we will, we will have convened some of the greatest and the brightest, but not again, not just from Oxford and Cambridge and from London. We will be finding people from rural communities. We will be finding people from distant communities. We'll be finding people from lots of different ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds and have to be part of this. And I think, you know, when we do our job well, we'll be, we'll be building a different type of network of curious, engaged people who've learned to trust each other and trust people they would never normally have met in real life. So to see whether we can just do our bit in building bridges, you know, across, as you said, a very sort of divided, fractured society at the moment. I love it. You, you've got a uh, podcast. Tell us about the Aspen UK podcast. <laughs> That's very nice of you to mention that. Thank you. Yeah, I love, as I promoting a, the, other people's podcasts. <laughs> we have a lovely one. We it's called the Future of. We, we the Aspen Institute in the UK. We um we were very quick to jump on the the webinar bandwagon um when the um when the pandemic started last year, and because we have such a lovely reputation to be able to convene the brightest and the best. We just jumped on all our friends at the beginning of last year and said, you know, will you join us for different conversations? So we had three different series of webinars and then podcasts looking at the future of. And it honestly actually became like a party game. We would say, well, what can we talk about this week? And we did an extraordinary array of, of, um, of remarkable conversations. So Madden Albright came to talk to us on the future of um, international relations. We had Mark Thompson from the New York Times talking about the future of trust. We had some of the finest museum heads in the country talking about the future of museums. We had um, great comedians talking about the future of, of comedy. So there are amazingly fun conversations about the most ridiculous array of topics um, and with some of the best thinkers in the UK and around the world. So it was um it was a fun game that actually has turned into something really serious. It's turned into to proving that you can bring people together who, as I said, are really curious about the same topic, but look at it from different angles and sometimes disagree with each other. So that's our podcast. And it's um, it's really kind of you to ask. It's It's been really successful. And we, we have people now that we know regularly tune in from about 15 to 20 countries, which again is quite unexpected. And, and it's a really wonderful positive outcome from what's been a desperate lockdown so 
yeah, it's it's been a good thing. And we're going to carry on doing it. So we're going to launch a new series um, in in September. So um, we look forward to bringing even more impressive, great and the good um, to join us. What do you do for fun, Penny? <laughs> do you know what I do? And I'm really missing it. Um, I love entertaining. I love, uh, there is no greater joy in my life than bringing people together around a table. Probably quite a lot of alcohol, mostly wine good food and chats I can't think of anything better and in fact in the UK we are our entire restrictions COVID restrictions were meant to end last uh, next week on Monday we've just heard they're not going to but I have taken the week off just so I can host every evening because I'm so excited by it that's my great joy and my other joy is jumping on planes but clearly that's been right rather curtailed in the last year or so well I I love having you on uh Mooch FM. I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to get invited to one of your dinner parties. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, Next time you're in London, you but I can't are, get I, to London. They won't they won't let me in. You know, even uh -huh. though I'm like vaccinated and all this other stuff, we'll have to figure that out. There will but, be time, uh, and I would be honored to have you at my table. Well, it, well, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Oh, I've loved every second of this chat. Thank you so much. What a treat. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.